welcome to the Black Minds Matter podcast, where we discuss the root causes of educational inequality and the hope we have for a better path forward. Our essence and our being deserve life. Enjoy the show. Welcome to our Black Minds Matter series. Today, we are thrilled to have with us Gerard Robinson. Gerard, you are have been at the forefront of research in education, particularly as it relates to African-Americans from the K-12 level all the way up through universities. Uh, you spent a lot of time looking at, at HBCUs. Mm -hmm. uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. And currently, you are Vice President of Education at the Advanced Studies in Culture Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm going to get you to describe that in a, in a, in a couple of minutes, uh, but your background is just so extensive. Former Secretary of Education in Virginia, Florida Education Commissioner, former President of Black Alliance for Educational Options, or BAO as we know it, your education background, BA from Howard University, Master's in Education from Harvard University. So before we we really get into the discussion. Tell me about the the Advanced Studies in Culture Foundation in Charlottesville. No, first of all, thank you for the invitation uh, to talk about education as it relates to Black people. Thank you for the theme. Uh, I believe that uh, Black minds, in fact, do matter. So the foundation uh, is connected to a research center called the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at UVA founded in 1995 by Dr. James Hunter, who's a scholar of sociology here at UVA. He's the author of Culture Wars, which many years ago helped kind of set the stage for what we see today in American culture. So at the foundation, we do a few things. Uh, we basically provide administrative support to the scholars and the postdocs who work at the Institute. Uh, we also raise funds uh, to support our initiatives and third, we find ourselves working as thought partners to people in the private sector, the nonprofit, private, uh, nonprofit sector, and other places who are basically interested in trying to figure out how does culture matter to the formation of children in the K-12 se uh, sector, to adults who work in higher education, and to people across the globe in what we call late modern society. And today we're talking about the history of schooling in America and, and the question posed, were schools made for black people? And, and I'm going to start by going back to into history and going all the way back to 1619 when the first enslaved Africans arrived here in the United States. Is this where we can start the education story of, of blacks in America and, and probably uh, looking at a, a, a troubled story? So the story of black education in the United States is actually older than the Constitution, older than the Bill of Rights, and older than the Declaration of Independence. The story of our sojourn through world history, 1619, is a start of our life on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, our ancestors uh, throughout the continent of Africa, whether they were Muslim, Christian, what we would call uh, atavists or others, they already had a system of teaching and learning. And we know that also goes 
all the way back to uh, ancient Egypt and even further south to Nubia. So the idea of schooling and learning is something that we help to introduce to the world uh, at times uh, before learning as we know it and what we call Europe today and even the role that the, uh, the Egyptians or the Africans uh, played in helping with the scholars or those who became the scholars uh, in Greece. So fast forward to 20 uh, to 1619, the, uh, the Africans who arrived not too far away from here where I am in Charlottesville, in Jamestown, in fact, were not shadow slaves as we know them. Uh, Dr. Uh, Judge Leon Higginbotham, who before he died was a professor of jurisprudence at the uh, Kennedy School at Harvard University. I was a graduate student at Harvard at the time, had the uh, honor to take a class with him. He published a book called In the Manner of Color. Uh, and it's a book about uh, race, about uh, colonial politics, and about slavery in early America. And it's a book that I would recommend uh, that anyone who's interested in history, education, law, and policy should pick up. And he basically talked about what happened in 1630 uh, with a guy named John Punch, uh, who was arrested along with uh, two white colleagues and others for some activities. And John Punch, his punishment was serving his life uh, sentence with his master, where the other two who were with him were non-black or not. So the idea that we arrived as chattel slaves as we know it today was true. We surely arrived with nuanced stand, uh, status. We weren't citizens, uh, but the idea of chattel slavery had not yet set in. And so when we arrived, we already arrived with the language, with the history and the culture, some of that coming from what we would call schools, but really learning institutions. And so 1619 moving forward really is a conversation about uh, black history on this side of the Atlantic, even though there was a black presence uh, in the Americas before Columbus, something that Ivan Van Sertima uh, in his book that came before Columbus identified. So with me, it's just a continuation of a longer conversation. It just happened to take place in what we now call Virginia. And as we moved forward in history and moved into and transitioned into what, what we know as chattel slavery, obviously stories, traditions from people who were brought from all over Africa were, were being exchanged uh, you know, in these plantation environments and in, 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 in these horrible working conditions. What was that all like? How was that happening? Because that, that had to have been uh, a little difficult because normally when, when you would think about a people telling stories, sharing traditions, they're doing it as a single group of people transferring it down generation to generation. But then you have people from all parts of, of different parts of Africa being brought together. So how are those stories being exchanged and at some point all that must have been stifled you mentioned my uh, involvement with hbcus i'm a graduate at howard university i also work with a number of hbcus uh, through a philanthropic and research perspective our hbcus for over 100 years have documented exactly some of the things uh, that you raise uh, whether it's scholars who looked at plantation creole uh, and the evolution of what we now call Black English or English, uh, Black-speaking, quote-unquote, non-standard English. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of a book called Prince Among Slaves, uh, and it's a story about an African uh, who was enslaved uh, in the Americas, I believe, North Carolina, uh, who was Muslim, 
who was speaking, someone heard um, his dialect, heard the diction and said, wait a minute, I heard this when I was in Dustin. So, and so a number of Africans, of course, speaking many languages, not just one, uh, they had to find ways to communicate. Uh, in Louisiana, you had very large concentrations of, uh, of Africans who were Muslim, and a number of them created uh, maroon colonies. When we think of maroon colonies, we only think about Jamaica, that's true. Uh, but as a scholar, I can't think of the school where she works, but she wrote a book about the maroons in the United States. And sometimes those maroon communities were not only created because of connection in religion, this time being Islam, uh, but also language, and they lived in the swamps and other places. So language became very complicated, but as people moved away from what we would call their indigenous language to speaking uh, English, or now what we call today uh, as Black English, there's a scholar named John, uh, Professor Dillard, who's at University of Pennsylvania, he was the professor, my linguistics professor, Dr. Jackson at Howard University. And there's just a long story that we don't have time to go into, but language played a big role. Some of that was driven by region and religion. So what can you tell us about, as we view schools today, what, what's the first version of a, a black school in the United States and, and when did that happen? There's a lot of conversation right now about Thomas Jefferson. Of course, he was a slave owner. Same thing about Thomas Jefferson, about uh, George Washington, also a slave owner. When archeologists uh, conducted excavations uh, work on their plantations, uh, take George Washington, for example, they actually found today what we call tablets and pencils in the slave quarters. When they conducted similar work for Thomas Jefferson's uh, plantation, they found tablets. And these tablets were basically what the enslaved Africans were using to teach themselves words, uh, math, to use symbols and diagrams to communicate. This was taking place in the 1700s, uh, at times again before there was a US constitution, people were involved. So there were underground schools that were taking place whether they were the first school or not, I'll let your audience decide how they wanted to find school, but there were definitely learning institutions taking place on slave plantations. At times, children, relatives, or friends of the slave owners who either moving through Christian passion uh, or a humane approach decided, you know what, I want to help them learn. I want to teach them. And those were taking place on plantations across, uh, not only the South, because you also had uh, slavery in the North, but there are a lot of what we call underground schools. And again, this is in the 1700s. And then what was, I know we're, it's almost like we're on a, a, a crazy ride through history and we're yeah. doing way too fast, but you, you're, you're there at the, the, the official conclusion of slavery, emancipation proclamation, mm -hmm. You know, we look at milestones and, and the next one that that pops up uh, with this huge gap is Brown versus Board. Yeah. So what what was going on between emancipation and Brown versus Board? So Brown, the Board of Education in 1954 uh, is a great place to look, but it's not the only place to start. And that's not, no, that's not your question. Yeah. So back to the 1800s in Boston. Uh, in the Roberts case, where there was a black family and a black girl, 
And the dad basically uh, sued Boston because he said, you're not giving my daughter a chance to go to a school uh, that's closer to our home. You're sending her to the black school. Well, the case did not work out in his favor, but what did happen in 1855 is Massachusetts passed a anti-discrimination or better yet, an anti-segregation schools case, 1855. You know, almost 100 years later, you have Brown. But just think about the fact that even before then, you go back to 1740 in South Carolina. Uh, and this is important because if you're thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation, you've also got to say, well, how did we have an Emancipation Proclamation? What were we emancipating them from? It was from slavery. And who was the first state to make the big push to succeed uh, from the United States? And it was South Carolina. We'll go back to 1740. South Carolina uh, passed a law. And I had a chance to share it with some of the uh, fellows in our Bayo class that would have been four or five years ago, where they basically passed a law saying it is illegal to teach a slave to read or to write. And to do so, there was a financial penalty that in today's terms was just astronomical. It was then. But the whole result of that was because of a botched uh, slave rebellion that had happened. And they said, uh-uh. This is not going to happen because the number of the people involved in the plot were literate. And so the slave master saw a link between literacy and liberation. So you move to 1954. Um, one person you should definitely think about bringing on your show is Linda uh, Brown. Uh, her uh, dad was Brown in the Brown Board of Education case. Her sister is the one you see on the book, Simple Justice. She's the one you see on a lot of places. And Linda Brown and I had a chance to talk September 17th last year, and she talked about Brown. What was so interesting is that Brown wasn't just one case. It was Virginia here in uh, Prince Edward County. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, D.C. and South Carolina and two other places. But we got to Brown because basically families said we need to, as American citizens, we have a right to our taxes, we have a right to use our money as we feel free uh, to use, but the separate and unequal, uh, uh, separate and, uh, uh, and equal isn't real, it's separate and it's unequal. So the courts, uh, courts took a look at it and uh, decided uh, unanimously that we needed to get rid of Jim Crow, moving from the front of the classroom to the back. But that story in 54 is a long trail going back again to the 1700s and moving forward. But, it, uh, it was a culmination of a lot of work, a lot of death, uh, a lot of work that the NAACP, both the organization and the Legal Defense Fund, people like Charles Hamilton Houston played uh, uh, in, that, uh, in that work. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize uh, the work that those organizations did to the research they did to form the justification and the proof that separate uh, was not equal. Uh, you know, that's something where uh, a lot of people thought, well, it was just self-evident that it wasn't. But obviously, if you're going to bring something to change the law of the land, you've got to do the research. So we look at Charles Hamilton Houston. Uh, he was really the architect of what became the Brown strategy. Most people don't know much about him. They know more about Thurgood Marshall, obviously so first black Supreme Court justice. But Thurgood Marshall was one of... Uh, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston students at Howard University when he became uh, dean of the school. He said, I'm going to create basically the next generation of social engineers who will use the courtroom to debate what our rights are as Americans. 
Uh, there's a great book uh, called The Groundwork uh, by uh, Janetta, uh, Dr. Jennery McNeil. She used to be a professor at uh, University of North Carolina. She was my professor uh, at Howard University. Uh, it's an award-winning book on the life and times of Charles Hamilton Houston and what he had to create. Uh, he was in the Army. He saw segregation firsthand. Uh, he was also the first black uh, to sit on uh, uh, law review uh, at Harvard. Uh, he's also one of the few Americans of any race to earn a doctorate in law from Harvard above the JD. So he was a really interesting person. And I think if you want to look at the history of using the courts uh, for black people as a strategy to fight for our rights and to dismantle slowly but surely uh, Jim Crow, uh, he's someone to look at along with the number of uh, acolytes he produced along the way. So once Brown v. Board happens, what's the first, the immediate impact of that? Well, all of a sudden you have 50 plus uh, Southern uh, district judges uh, in the South who have to influence, implement a desegregation clause, technically the United States, but really focused on the South. And then you have a number of Southerners who are saying, hell no, we won't do it. And so you have Brown v. Board uh, 154, Brown v. Board 255, which moves forward with the uh, term with all deliberate speed. But what did the Southern legislators do? Uh, they said, well, first of all, the Supreme Court, which is an unelected judiciary, can't tell states what to do with a state issue called education. So they relied on the 10th Amendment to basically say that education is the state's rights. But they went further than that. They created something that we call today the Southern Manifesto. And it was signed by at least 102 uh, members of Congress uh, majority of them from the states that used to make up the Confederacy. And they basically said the judiciary is not going to tell us what to do with, quote unquote, integrating our schools. They were very clear they didn't want the Negroes at the schools. Of course, they used different terms than that. And it's just not going to happen. And so the Southern Manifesto passed. States then responded with putting together nullification acts. Uh, um, uh, nullification acts, there's also other acts they put together, but they basically said, we're not going to do it. So from 1955 up through, let's say, 1969, you had a number of Southern states who simply put up barriers to integrate schools. In Prince Edward County from 1959 to 1964, they shut down the entire public school system, just shut it down. Blacks and whites, no place to go to school at that time. Many of them had to leave. And I've met some adults today who are still alive who had no formal education from there. They closed high schools. Um, they took the black teachers and principals, moved them over to the white schools, demoted them. Some of them then taking jobs as janitors and librarians, even though they had higher credentials than some of their white colleagues. So Brown just didn't arrive at the victory. Hey, we won. There was a fight we're still fighting today, but from 55 to 69, uh, it was a big fight. And so there was a snail's pace toward trying to really desegregate schools. Well, I'm a child of, of the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, firsthand, I experienced and, and saw, you know, I mean, when, when as, as I was growing up, when I first learned about Brown v. Board, and supposedly no more separate but equal. You know, I was living in a little town of Opelousas, Louisiana. Okay. Our schools were totally segregated. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was a school teacher. He taught at a uh, small black elementary school in a, in a tiny town called Port Barry. 
In fact, uh, almost all his students were children of sharecroppers. And uh, school would open in September, but kids wouldn't start really showing up for class until maybe a month or two months later because they had to work in the fields during the school to uh, their parents. But it was definitely a, a, a totally separate school system. And, you know, I saw the the desegregation plans that I guess were the result of subsequent court cases. I was part of uh, the the first voluntary desegregation of a uh, of schools in Opelousas. My parents uh, and the way that worked and I look at it now is this was maybe the first exposure to, of school choice because what mm-hmm. they did was they made uh, they said if you wanted to send your child to a majority white school you could do that and mm-hmm. uh, so my parents decided to enroll us into a majority white school I was in the fifth grade it was me and my sister mm-hmm. and uh, you know the the strange thing that I, now that I remember, is there were only, I think, five students total that took advantage of that. And I'm not quite sure why. I think part of it was that maybe a a lot of black families were uncomfortable doing it, uh, but uh, it was just very few of us. That program lasted a year. And after that one year, then there was another court ruling that forced integration. And then at, at that point, we had uh, white flight out of public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the the segregation academies pop up overnight, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe talk a little bit about about that history. Yeah, so fifty five to sixty nine, uh, that's part of the big rise of the white segregated academies in the South. Louisiana uh, is a state that had a number, and so basically, what the governor of Louisiana said is, listen, we've got to find a way to move beyond mandatory integration. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna create something called tuition grants. And tuition grants were publicly funded scholarships. They were often given to white families only, in some cases, black families, but mostly to white families who could use that money to go to a private school, sometimes a religious school, um, and create it. Uh, In 1965, 66, uh, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights identified that you, it would be tough to have a private school system in the South in the absence of tuition grants being used uh, by segregation-minded governors and school board members and superintendents to create these schools. So you had a number of Robert E. Lee academies uh, that popped up in Louisiana and other places. In fact, you mentioned Louisiana. There was one all-Black school uh, in Louisiana uh, that was funded in part by this because they say, well, listen, if the Blacks want it, we'll give them some. But your experiment about, uh, or experience about being uh, one of the few kids to do so, I talked to families here in Virginia. They said we had five, six, seven. And yeah. I said, well, why not more? And they said, first of all, we were scared for our, our lives. A lot of parents said, I'm just not going to send my children. That's, that's what I thought probably happened with us. It was like just not, and particularly daughters. Uh, I did have one colleague, in fact, she lives here in Charlottesville. She was, she was in Norfolk. And she said, uh, five dads. Uh, would drive their children to school, and there were three daughters, one son, and all of the fathers had shotguns in the car, so that if anything popped off, they were going to be the second one to start popping. 
And so there was a whole dynamic of why people said, I'm just not going to do it. Not because they didn't think it was important, because they said it frankly wasn't worth uh, my child. But the segregation academy piece, unfortunately, our opponents of school choice use that to say that the vouchers, the tax credit programs that we have today really are just warmed over uh, white segregation academies. That's so far from the truth. And they miss it for three reasons. A lot of those academies were created before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, created before the 1965 um, education or secondary education, uh, elementary, secondary, elementary and secondary education act, which pro prohibited that. A lot of those came before the Supreme Court started chalking out, nope, you can't do this. Uh, number two, a lot of those, if you look at the language, said they were for white kids. There's no program for the 52 programs that we have in the country that are publicly funded, 500,000 plus children who have white only. And it was a lot of us in the African-American community when the laws were being passed, we were the ones to push to say, we wanna make sure that you have to adhere to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Some of our colleagues in the movement didn't want it. They said, we don't want government intrusion. Well, there are times you need to have government involved. And I'm one of the people who believes that should be in there. But that history was real. Do we have some of those academies in existence today? Yeah, there's some still here in this city uh, today that are integrated, but they were they flowered during that massive resistance movement. So I tell my friends, when you talk to older African-Americans who said, nah, we're not for that choice thing, we saw freedom of choice, that was real. Um, I call that fear-based freedom of choice. I mm. think what we have today is liberty-based freedom of choice. Different words, same phrase, but very different ideology. The interesting thing, you know, just remembering, thinking back to that time, and again, you know, I'm, you know, a, a boy, mm -hmm. but it was obvious to at least everyone black in the community, everybody I knew, that these schools were, they popped up literally overnight. Uh, so you knew that the education there was subpar. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't last because uh, these families uh, started sending their kids back to public school pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what started happening was they started figuring out how to do their school choice, which is the yeah. economic school choice where uh, we're going to move. We're going right. to move out of this community. And, uh, you know, for a town like, you know, my small hometown, it's now just about, you know, it's still living the legacy of that. The town is basically yeah. 100% black. Mm -hmm. so schools are, you know, they're still segregated, but not because of a segregation policy. There's just very few white students to, uh, to integrate the school. So that, uh, that whole thing, I, I look at it as, as this policy and this history actually led to uh, the white flight that we saw from cities. And, you know, I looked at it from the viewpoint of a small town, but obviously mm -hmm. it really impacted big cities. You mentioned um, the, the students who had to leave, the white flight and coming back yeah. in. I mean, it was just a tumultuous time period to be a student. And to talk to students, like in Prince Edward County, uh, there was a 50th anniversary of Brown v. Board here in Charlottesville and the Virginia Institute for Humanities. And it was just amazing to see people walk to the stage and say, my name is Clarence Jones, and I, 
uh, left school in the third grade in 1955, 59, and I never returned to school again. And person after person after person, and I just teared up. I mean, these people never, ever went back to school. Yeah. And so in 2004, the governor at the time of Virginia um, said that him or he and a, and a private donor uh, put up a million dollars and they created the Brown v. Board of Education Fund to try to provide some relief to the generation of families in Prince Edward County who were left behind because of that. And those people are alive today. You can talk to them, they'll tell you your, their stories. It's, it's some heavy stuff, it really is. Well, when you look at you know a, a lot of all this obviously led to, not only led to, but actually perpetuated these longstanding inequities in mm -hmm. society, economic disparities. So can we, you know, I think a lot of times some education reformers feel that if we just pump money into to schools, that we're going to fix the problem, but they never, can we do that without looking at economic disparity in communities? Well, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is money matters. And when people tell me it doesn't matter, I say, then give me your money. And then we'll see if it matters. So I know money matters. But often when we have a money conversation, it's a revenue discussion only. It's got to be revenue and expenditures. Let's talk about how you invest your money. There's plenty of social science research which identifies spending your money in the right categories, investing your money in the teachers who are teaching uh, where their credential in course, there are a lot of things that we can do. So I would say uh, that money matters. Schools, unfortunately, have become um, almost like the magic ball for us. If we can just put children in the school, everything will work out well. Well, you know what? We have a lot of examples of schools who've taken children from uh, poverty uh, to prosperity, but we also have to not uh, rely on schools and their teachers to be the sole ones or institutions or groups responsible for fixing or addressing economic inequality. So there's a lot that takes place outside of school. Um, the, you know, I'm on the board of the National After School, of After School Alliance, and we identified through research that between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. is where a lot of kids find themselves getting in trouble. They're not involved in after school programs. So there's an out-of-school out time component that matters a lot to trying to fix the inequities. I also think we've got to work with parents. I think that's one of the great uh, things that we focused on at Bale is that we said it's one thing to have the kids in the classroom, but they already have teachers or educators to call their parents. What can we do to work with them to give them the uh, uh, the social capital, the support to help with their kids? The economic inequality, I just don't think you're going to find uh, that gap closed anytime soon. A lot of that has to do with our uh, system of uh, economics. I support the system, but there are a lot of dynamics. So for me, I see school reform as providing an opportunity to give people a chance to put their children into schools to better themselves. Now, they may better themselves in the absence of ever closing that economic gap or addressing white supremacy or other factors that we know we want to address. My thing is, I don't want to boil the ocean to cook an egg. I'm going to take the pot that I have, the egg that I have, and the water I have, which I call education, and work with that. There's others who can work with us to do the rest. 
And uh, a couple of times you've mentioned the organization Bayo. And for those who are, are watching this interview and, and may not be familiar with that, uh, tell us about Bayo and, and your work with Bayo. So Bayo was created uh, in the late 90s by uh, a group of African-Americans um, who went in Milwaukee, but they were also in other places. Dr. Howard Fuller uh, at that time, well, used to be the superintendent of the schools in Milwaukee. His wife, Deborah McGriff, former superintendent of schools in Detroit. But a number of African-American educators, reformers, philanthropists, and others said, listen, wherever we live, wherever we go, we always find black kids finding themselves in the worst educational conditions. Uh, even if they're in a school that's quote unquote integrated, you find them in special classes away from everyone else. So the Black Alliance for Educational Options was created to basically give low income and working class black families an opportunity to exercise uh, parental options. That is in the within the public school system and outside the public school system whether it was what we call vouchers, which are really scholarships today, tax credits, ESAs, and the whole point, homeschoolers. So the whole idea was there's no one lane toward to liberation and that people will take different lanes. And if your lane is homeschool, what can we do to support it? If it's traditional public schools, what can you do to support it? Because we supported charters and vouchers, people considered us anti-public schools. You look at our board, we had uh, former public school teachers and those involved in the system on it. Um, Bayo uh, voluntarily closed its doors a few years ago uh, for nearly 20 years, helped change the narrative on what reform looked like, but more importantly, moving uh, black children from the object of the conversation and black families to the subject of the conversation. And I think everything we do moving forward in part is driven by the work that we uh, supported at Bayo. was glad to be a part of uh, the organization. And I've had a saying about uh, school choice that, uh, especially the people who express doubts about it, that you know the school choice, even if you say you oppose it, the, there's always been school choice out there, and it's been their school choice, and it's school choice for those who are lucky enough to afford it, which means they can they can move and 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 they can have options and and make decisions. Uh, for the benefit of their families. You know, it's funny that you say that. When you think about what you just said in the context of black history, look at the, the voucher movement in, or the scholarship program movement in Milwaukee. It was Polly Williams, uh, a black woman, who was a member of uh, the legislature in Wisconsin, uh, who had been a part of the system of trying to change it, who woke up one day and said, we've got to do something radically different. She decides to partner with the white Republican governor uh, Tommy uh, Thompson of, uh, of Wisconsin. They create the first urban-based voucher program for low-income families in the country. I say urban because you already had uh, voucher-type programs uh, already in New England, Vermont comes to mind. But it was black people, along with others, but a black lawmaker who made the difference. Look at New Orleans. You have a urban-based voucher program that began there some years ago. Andrew Plessis, uh, Representative Badon, two African-Americans in your state who decided we're going to take the lead on this. If you take a look at Washington, D.C., it was an African-American mayor, Tony Williams. It was Kevin Chavis, chair of the D.C. City Council. It was Rod Page, African-American secretary of education, Dr. Howard Fuller, and a group of others 
who helped create a three-sector initiative that really helped to fund in a unique way vouchers, charter schools, and traditional schools. If you look in the 1970s, if you look at the black political conventions that took place in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and also in Gary, Indiana, they were talking about what we call vouchers then. Why? Because you had black independent schools, either connected to churches or independent schools connected to the larger African movement, some of those coming out of the African independence liberation movement, who said we need to create our own schools. I taught at the Marcus Garvey School, founded in the 1970s by someone who had a similar philosophy. So the idea that what we call charters or what we call vouchers is independent of, of, of the role of black people in influencing it is simply not true. There's really very few education movements in the United States, including alternative education, where we already didn't have a footprint. So what do you say to some of our, our school choice, ed reform opponents, and I'm talking about black opponents who say, mm -hmm. education reform hasn't worked. Uh, not enough black teachers, too much teach for America, no control. What, what's your answer to that? That wasn't the reason why we created uh, the parental choice movement. The parental choice movement was created to do exactly what it said, to give parents an opportunity to choose where to put their children in schools. Now think about the fact that some of the uh, parents put their kids in schools that are Catholic and they themselves are not Catholic. Doesn't mean if I go to a charter school that I have to have a non-TFA person. I can't tell you that many of the parents, in fact, know whether the teachers their kids are working with are TFA or not. So I just think that's a distraction. But what's more important, if you didn't have control in charter schools, then you've got to go back and look at uh, Senator Amber Young in Minnesota, who helped create the first charter law in the United States. She created that so that teachers could practice their craft in a new way, because a lot of them said, I entered the profession to do something unique and different but I can't. So let's create a charter school that teachers could found. You go to California, 1992, they become the second state in the country with a charter law. Both of those states only allow teachers to create charter schools, not parents. So the whole, you know, today, parents, nonprofits, and others can create charter schools. You look at the first two states, it was primarily teachers. So even teachers themselves in the traditional system said, we want to do something uh, different. There's research to show that TFAs, uh, core members have had an impact in the classroom, but a lot of them who don't stay in the classroom still stay in education through philanthropy, through public policy, through government work, and through entrepreneurship. So I agree that a lot of uh, folks, you know, African-Americans, our folks, simply think it doesn't work. You know, at the end of the day, that's fine. Well, they say it takes money away from education. I said, every time a child drops out of school, that takes money away from education. Every time we have a student from the school to prison pipeline, that only not, not only does it take money out of public education, but now you're putting money in the prison uh, system and you've likely decreased that person's uh, net uh, value and worth by almost $750,000 uh, over his or her lifetime. I accept the fact that as black people, we can agree to disagree. All I wanna say is there are multiple paths to liberation. And if yours isn't on this path, just don't block us from doing it. And today, uh, we're at a, a really a, a juncture in American history that is impacting not only America, but the whole world, COVID-19, mm -hmm. but it's impacting Blacks in this country, especially, a lot more seriously. And, and there's a bit of a, 
a school choice dilemma for parents now with COVID-19. And, and it's just this issue of, of feeling safe at school. And again, if, if you are in a school or a district where you, you can only go to a school based on your zip code, you're trapped and uh, you're fearing something that is, is literally deadly. Well, here's an issue where we really have to let the families speak to local, well, local public health officials and superintendents. This is where I think is really locally driven because you're gonna have to make the decision whether to go or not. Um, I know there's some private schools that will never open again uh, because the closure in, in February or March simply led to their demise. Um, there's some colleges in California I can think of a couple now that aren't going to open. So on this one, I'm going to tell parents, you really have to spend time uh, listening to what your local uh, leaders have to say, public health, educators, and others. You can listen national if you want to, and there's a, a dynamic as to why that is taking place. But on this one, uh, I would say look local. Well, on that, uh, we're going to close it. We're going to wish you uh, the best of health uh, as we continue to battle this pandemic. And Gerard Robinson, this has been, uh, you've allowed me in giving me some personal leeway to uh, to go back to my childhood and remember some things. So, you know, I thank you so much for joining us on uh, this edition of Black Minds Matter. Thank you so much. I'd like to leave you with this piece as we're talking about history. When the Northern troops uh, traveled through the South, uh, of course, fighting against the Confederates, a number of them wrote in their diaries and a number of them shared stories when they returned home of all these underground black schools that they kept running across, where they found books, where they found, again, found tablets and other educational materials all throughout the South. So even during the Civil War, when you had some blacks who were with the Confederates, and of course, you had a lot more uh, of the blacks who were with the Union, they were basically saying, no matter who wins this war, we're not going to be a slave anymore because education is going to matter. And so when they got to uh, to Georgia, there was a conversation uh, with one leader of the union. And he said, well, what should I tell uh, the people when I return home? And the young boy said, uh, Massa, tell them we are rising. Now, that's the sanitized version. What he really said was, Massa, tell them we be rising. Now, think about it. Tell them we be rising. He's saying that because in the midst of slavery, he knew education was his rise. And so then the Civil War ends, you have the Reconstruction legislatures in the South, Louisiana being one. And as Du Bois showed us in his research, Du Bois said, you don't have a universal free public education in the system in the South without the formerly enslaved Africans who are now members of the legislature. And why one of the first things they really push is education is because all along, they were liberating themselves in the absence of school. We're in 2020, we're just following a, a trajectory that goes back to Africa, but on this side of the Atlantic, 1619 to the present, and we still rise. Thanks for listening to the Black Minds Matter podcast. You can watch the video of this episode on YouTube. Our goal is simple. We seek to ensure every child receives a quality education in the school of their parents' choosing.